Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to thank those of you that prayed for uh, the elders as we were away on our uh, retreat, our annual retreat. Um, it, was a, it was a great time, wonderful time. God got the glory and uh, just uh, some great discussion and uh, the unity um, and just coming away with a sense of win after win after win. And it's just, just wanted you to, to say thank you because I know a lot of you were praying for us as we were, as we were away. Well, this morning we continue in our study of John. We just have a few weeks left, a couple weeks left. Um, but um, it's getting better and better. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 20 again, finishing up this chapter. And again, we're talking about the resurrection. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, um, who uh, has written several books, now retired, said this once about the resurrection, that if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I would add that if Jesus rose from the dead, not only do we have to accept all that he said, but that we have to confess him as both Lord and God and submit to his lordship. You know, it's, 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 it's one thing to believe all the right things, you know, but, but will we bring our lives into subjection to the truth? And so if we don't, well, the Bible makes it very clear, we will perish. But there's good news. <laughs> Those who believe in the resurrected Christ have the assurance of his presence, his peace, his power, and purpose in their lives. Now, I mean, think about that for a minute. If we believe in the resurrected Christ, we have the promise of his presence in our lives, his peace, his power, and his purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your servant, John, who penned these words, who recorded for us the things which took place um, that we might know you that we might know ourselves and that we would uh, bring our lives into conformity with your word. And so, Holy Spirit, as I often pray, I ask that you would be our teacher and our guide here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 20. And what I'd like to do this morning is start out actually by reading the entire passage. And so we're going to start in verse... Uh, 19 and go through the end of the chapter. On the evening of that day, Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. And this morning, what I'd like to do is tackle um, this, this section uh, using the natural divisions of the text um, and let that kind of serve as our outline. So, so first, we're, we're going to look at Jesus' appearance to the disciples without Thomas present. And then we're going to look at Jesus's appearance with disciples with Thomas present. And then we're going to look at how John ends his gospel, um, which is also quite amazing, the, the purpose for his book. In fact, as you read chapter 20, you kind of come away thinking, well, why didn't John just end there? I mean, it seemed like those last couple of verses, it's a great way to end the book. Well, in the next couple of weeks, I think you'll, you'll know why he doesn't end it there. There's some unresolved stuff, something that needs to be taken care of, and, and John wants to make sure we know it was taken care of. So, but that's for the, for the next couple of weeks. So, so let's take a look at that, the first part, you know, Jesus appearing to his disciples without Thomas' presence. I'm going to put up the text so you can at least see where we are here. And the first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus calms the disciples' fear with his presence and his word. You know, last week I I mentioned to you that, you know, the disciples were, were living in fear. They were in a room that was locked. And here we are after the resurrection after everything that we talked about last week, and they're still behind locked doors. So that's just reality. That's just, that's just life. You know, we can get good news, and we can be encouraged and everything else, and still we wrestle, still we doubt, still there, there are problems. And, and here the disciples are, are you know, they, they heard Mary's testimony. Jesus had appeared to Peter by this time. Peter was there present as well as other people, which I'll I'll get to. But they're behind locked doors. 
Mary had gone to the tomb. Peter and John ran there. We talked about how they saw the the clothing and the face cloth laid there. Later, Jesus appears to Mary. Sometime later, Jesus appears to Peter. And sometime during that day, he also appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so things are happening fast and, and furious here. But nonetheless, they're still behind locked doors. So that tells you where their heart is. So Jesus comes and, and he, he appears to them. I mean, let's, let me maybe digress just a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure we can definitively say this, but I think the fact that John uh, mentions that they were behind locked doors is, is telling. Now, Jesus could have, you know, gotten the key from the landlord. Landlord could have let them in. Who knows? I mean, we can't say, this text doesn't say that he miraculously appeared. But I think when you take the locked doors and the fact that John says, and Jesus came and stood among them. It doesn't say like Jesus came into the room, entered the room, Jesus walked in or anything. It just It's like he just miraculously appeared in their midst. And, and I think this is, this is important, but it's not the primary point of what he's getting at here. Now, you have to understand that during Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples were at peace. Why? Because they had Jesus. They had the physical presence of Jesus with them. He looked out for them. He cared for them. He fed them. He protected them. But then all of that was taken away the night that he was arrested, His absence robbed them of that peace. And they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus even predicted that this would happen. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So imagine how they must have felt when Jesus showed up. He's back. He's here. Jesus. I mean, John doesn't give us all of the, but I'm sure there was a lot of emotion. I'm sure there were bright eyes, big smiles. I even wonder if they did the same thing that Mary did and clung to Jesus. But his mere presence would have been enough to calm their fears. But upon entering, he does more than just show up. He says to them, peace be with you. And he says it again in verse 21. And peace be with you or peace to you um, is, is a common greeting amongst Jews even to this day. It's a standard greeting, shalom. But this was more than just a standard greeting. It is as if... Jesus is trying to get them to remember the words that he had just said to them not too long ago. In John 14, Jesus said this. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And here they are behind locked doors. And Jesus comes back and he says, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Jesus' words 
comforted them. And by the way, I think I even put that verse up there for you to see. You know, Jesus' words comforted them. And I think, you know, again, I mentioned last week that they were fearful, but I also think they felt guilty because they weren't there for him. I know I would have felt that way. After everything that Jesus had done for them, in his hour of need, they weren't there. They were scattered. As Jesus said, they all fell away. And the only person... You know, well, two people, John and Peter, followed after he was arrested. But we know what happened in the courtyard, right? Peter denied the Lord three times. And then John was the only one of them that was actually at the cross. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say in this text. I mean, keep this in mind. The disciples have failed Jesus. They were Cowardly. I'm not saying I would have done anything different, but I'm calling it as I see it here. Do you see what Jesus doesn't say? Yeah, I think that's as, as important as what he does say. Jesus doesn't come with a rebuke, but with a greeting of peace. He could have chastised them for their cowardness and unbelief, but instead he declares peace to them. And then he shows them his hands and his side. And, and, and the, here's another interesting thing, because we always think of Thomas with that, right? But Jesus showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples didn't ask to see it. And Jesus did. Thomas was the only one that said, I won't believe unless I see all that, unless I do this. But Jesus graciously revealed himself to them. It made it very clear, yes, this is Jesus. Yes, uh, these are the crucifixion marks. And by golly, he did rise from the dead because here he is in front of us. I see the wounds. This too is an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. Jesus didn't have to do it, but he did. But it is so much more than just um, an indication or a proof that Jesus is who he says he was and that he rose from the dead. It is evidence of the price that was paid for them to have the peace that he just blessed them with. Jesus went to the cross to die for their sins, for our sins, so that we could have peace with God so that we could have the peace of God in our life. And as they gaze at those wounds, I'm sure it's the reality and the significance and how it all tied together. They still didn't have a clue, but they would. They would. And how wonderful is it to know today, 2,000 years later, that Jesus doesn't treat us as our sin deserves that he doesn't rub our face in our sin. Point the finger. I told you so. I told you we were going to do that. You see, Jesus went to the cross and he died for all of that sin. And therefore, he can be gracious to us. We can be recipients of God's 
grace. I love what John you know, recorded for us in John 3.17, right after John 3.16, which I know you all know. But he says here, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And as I was reading this text this week, I was just thinking how grateful I am that God has not taken all of my sin, all of my failures, all of my garbage, and thrown it right back in my face because I could not, I, I, I could not bear up underneath that. He has been so gracious, so good. Jesus purchased our pardon on the cross. He himself, the scripture says, is our peace. He is the prince of peace. He proclaims peace to all who are willing to repent and trust in him. So the question is, have we trusted in him? Have we trusted in him to save us from our sin? Those who truly believe in the resurrected Christ, have the assurance of his presence and his peace. So let's talk a little bit more about this first encounter because here I think um, what we see is uh, not only that Jesus calms their fears with his presence and his word, but he also commissions them for his service. I think you can see that there in verses 21 through 23. Jesus gives us, gave to the disciples, and by extension us, a mission. What is it? Verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Okay. Why did he send Jesus? Why did the Father send Jesus? I don't think we would need to take much time to understand. Well, Jesus himself said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus was sent to redeem a fallen humanity, to bring salvation to all who would repent and believe the gospel. That's where John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is why God the Father sent God the Son. Now, what I want you to keep in mind here, because this is important too, in this setting, the disciples, the, the, the 10 disciples, because Thomas wasn't there, are not the only people in this room. We know that the two disciples who went on the road to Emmaus were also there, as well as others. In Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 33, we read, and speaking of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, one being Cleopas, it says, they rose that same hour, this is on the same day, the day of resurrection, they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So where, where I want you to see, it says, they found the 11 and those who were with them. 
So there were additional people here when Jesus first appears. And what that tells us then is that the task of evangelism is not just for the disciples, for, for, for those that Jesus chose that we have come to know as apostles, but they, it is for every Christ follower. Jesus is sending his followers to carry on his mission just as the Father had sent him. So imagine how this must have made the disciples feel. I mean, we've already talked about how they must have felt in seeing Jesus, hearing the words of peace and not being condemned, knowing they, they deserved it. And now Jesus comes and he says, hey, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I mean, if I was there, I'd, I'd be going, what? You still want me? You, you still want to use me? Use us? You, you still want us to do, after everything that we've done? <sighs> We're not disqualified? <sighs> see, do you see the grace in all of this? And how this must have made them feel. Despite their lack of faith and their glaring failures, Jesus entrusted to them the greatest privilege and responsibility known to man. I mean, this, this is no small thing here. He has given them the greatest privilege and responsibility ever given to human beings, and that is to preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. That's our mission. But as we know, if we endeavor to do that in our own strength, it's going to be an abysmal failure. And that's why he also gives them power. So he, he talks about their mission. He commissions them. But then he also says, hey, you need power. Look at verse 22. It says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and probably at this point, I better just forewarn you. Just I mentioned I have three points. Um, point one is the longest, okay? So don't think that the points two and three are going to be equally as long. They're going to be much shorter. So to accomplish this mission, they needed help. And that's why Jesus and the Father sent the helper. They needed help. They needed power. And interestingly enough, once again, we see all three members of the Trinity involved here. As the Father has sent the Son, I am sending you. But then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So all three members are involved in this great uh, commission this redemption of humanity, and Jesus then breathes on them and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." And I always imagine what did that look like? Did he get right up to their face and just, you know, you know? And what was his breath like? I yeah. But but this is what Jesus does. He breathes on them and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit," and and and. You know, after I got past the whole halitosis thing, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. Wait, I, 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 I thought the Holy Spirit came later. 
How can this be? I mean, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit could not come unless he goes away, and he was speaking of his ascension to the Father, not his death. So I don't understand this. How can they be receiving the Holy Spirit? Uh, John 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So I don't understand what's going on. And, And we also know, if you read in the book of Acts, chapter 2 in particular, the Holy Spirit does not come until the day of Pentecost, And then you have Jesus saying in Acts chapter 1, but you, which is now after this section, John chapter 20, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So even in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is looking, pointing to a, a future day when this would happen. So how should we interpret Jesus' words? I could go into all the different things that, I, that, that are out there, but I think the best way to understand um, what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is illustrating for the disciples what is going to happen in just a matter of weeks. And Jesus often taught this way. Uh, Jesus um, is, is our prophet, you know, priest, high priest, and, and king. He, he had all three offices. And when you look back to the Old Testament, you realize that the prophets often used object lessons. They often taught this way. And Jesus is, is, is our great prophet. And whether he's talking about using coins or fig trees or water or bread, he often taught in this sort of fashion. And so it's an object lesson of sorts. I think what Jesus Jesus is doing is he is pointing to or foreshadowing what would happen when the Holy Spirit finally comes to live in them. Now, the Holy Spirit was already present. Jesus said to his disciples, he is with you, but soon he will be in you. That indwelling of the Holy Spirit will not happen until the day of Pentecost. And I I think he's giving them a foretaste of this. But what I think strengthens this understanding um, is the fact that the Greek word for spirit means spirit, wind, and breath. By breathing on him, on them, he is enacting or demonstrating what would happen at Pentecost. So let me take you Acts chapter 2 briefly, verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and then verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here you have Jesus breathing on his disciples. Then you have, and remember, you know, pneuma means spirit, wind, breath. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends as a mighty rushing wind. And then if you go to verse 4, you you could say, and they were all filled with the holy wind. 
the holy breath of God. Every Christ follower has been commissioned and empowered by God to accomplish his mission in the world. So we may have been commissioned, but do we have the authority? And that's the third sub-point of point number one is our authority. Verse 23, Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Um, as I thought about this, I said, this is great. I'm getting these difficult passages here to try to unpack. And I know many of us come from uh, a background in which um, we were taught um, that certain individuals have the power to forgive sins. Um, I, gr- I grew up Catholic, and that was one of the things. You would go to confession, you would confess your sins, you would be absolved of your sins by the priest and you know, told what your penance needs to be. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, I want to be clear on that. Jesus is not saying to his disciples and every Christian that's going to be there that you now have the power to forgive sins in the sense of removing them, absolving them, taking them away. Uh, only God can forgive sins. Only the blood of Jesus, as we sang about earlier, can cleanse us from our sins. We, we have no power to do that. But what this means is that Jesus has given believers, i.e. the church, the authority and the power to declare that someone's sins are forgiven. And the power and the authority to declare that someone's sins remain. Now, we wouldn't necessarily use that language. You go up to somebody and say, brother, your sins remain. You know, that's not the way it works. But when a person rejects the gospel, we have been given the authority to declare on the basis of God's word what God's word says. His, his word says, if, if you confess your sins, if you believe, if you trust, fill in the blank. But it also says that if you reject the gospel, if you disbelieve that this will happen, we can stand on that. Jesus has already declared that. He has already decreed this to be the case, and it is done as far as he is concerned in heaven. So, think about this for a moment. Again, what a privilege, but what a responsibility. We get to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We get to do that. It's a privilege. And we get to proclaim the terms of salvation. And you know what they are? Unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. You must repent. You must believe the gospel. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. So we have God's authority, we have his power, and we have been commissioned. We simply need to obey. 
Let me move on now to point two. Jesus appears to the disciples with Thomas present. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I will never believe. So here you have the disciples coming to Thomas and telling him, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. You see, Jesus, I can't believe that. Now, keep in mind, these are not strangers. These are not loons. These are his best friends, people who he has lived with and served with for three years. He knows them, he knows their character. And, and, and I want you to see those last four words there that Jesus or Thomas said. Look closely at those last four words. See what he says? I will not believe. He doesn't say, I cannot believe. He says, I will not believe. The issue is not, could he believe? It's not that he couldn't believe. It's that he wouldn't believe. I will not believe. Believe. He is unwilling to believe. You know, in addition to the disciples telling them that they have seen the Lord, he would have most likely learned by now. News would have traveled fast. Not sure exactly where he would, would have been, but I'm sure he learned about the empty tomb. If, the, if, if he, he didn't hear it from somebody else, the disciples probably would have brought it up. They would have talked about the grave clothes. They would have talked about, you know, the face cloth. They, you know, Peter himself having seen Jesus somewhere between the empty tomb and this meeting at night certainly would have been talked about. So Thomas willfully chose to disbelieve to not accept the evidence that was put before him. And the only thing, he says, that would cause him to believe is if he sees for himself and he can put his finger into the wound in Jesus' hand and his hand into the wound of Jesus' side. So, let's see what happens. Verse 26 Eight days later, and the way they counted, they counted that day. So this would be the following Sunday. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So again, Jesus comes locked doors and all, stands before them, this time with Thomas present, and he shows himself to Thomas and basically says, Thomas, reach out your hands. Touch me. You gotta wonder at this point, Thomas is, how'd you know I wanted to do that or I needed to do that, you know? 
And, and I don't know about you. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I, I'd be scared. I'd be little, literally scared here, just not understanding. But here's the thing. John does not tell us that Thomas ever did that, that he ever reached out and touched him like he said he had to do. Because John just says immediately, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. This, I think, is the high point of John's gospel. It is the very belief that he has been trying to engender in his readers for the entire book. To get us to understand who Jesus is. He is our Lord and our God. Interestingly here, the word Lord in your Bible should be capitalized. It's the Greek word kurios. And it's, it's actually uh, comes uh, from the Greek Septuagint. It's used in the, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the word that is used to interpret the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's a strong argument for understanding that Jesus is God. But what really magnifies what, what, what he's saying here is the word theos, which is the Greek word for God. And he uses this in this statement, and it's even clearer in the Greek, if you, if you happen to have an interlinear Bible, for instance, you can see this. There is what's called the definite article that, that when used, it's the word the before a, a proper noun. So if you wanted to say uh, a God, you would just probably say, you would say theos or theos. If you wanted to say the God, you would say ho theos. Okay, um, it's, it's, it's the letter O with this little rough breathing mark over it. Well, what John says here basically is ho kurios, ho theos. Literally, he's saying the Lord of me, because it's, it, this is real, kind of, it's, it's in the genitive. Sorry, just trust me, okay? It, it's in the genitive. So it's, it's the Lord of me and the God of me. That's literally what he says. So Jesus shows himself to him and he falls and he's, he's the Lord of me and the God of me. To which we translate, obviously, in English, my Lord and my God. Thomas's words, are, I, I think, are the greatest confession of faith in Christ in the New Testament. I don't know anywhere else where it, it just has this much power, this much force, this much clarity to it. And notice, Jesus doesn't correct him. See, elsewhere in Scripture, where people would regard men or angels as something to be worshipped, um, Peter said, no, don't. I'm just a man. The angels, no, I'm just a servant of God. Jesus accepts it. And again, only God is to be worshipped. And then I think Jesus says something that we deeply need to grasp. It says, Jesus responded, Thomas now that you've seen me, you believe. But there are those who have never seen me with their eyes, but have believed in me with their hearts. And they 
will be blessed even more. Now think about that. You and I and all those who have never seen him are more blessed than Thomas was. Why is that? What is God after? He wants us to believe him, to believe in him, to believe his word, to trust him. Scripture says without faith it is impossible to please him. You want to please God? We have to have faith. We have to believe. We have to trust. We are, we, God is most pleased with us and we are most blessed when we take God at his word and believe in him. So if you believe in the resurrected Christ this morning, you know, it's very clear as to why you do. You, you do because you have chosen to believe the testimony of John and others. You have trusted in God's word that it is truly, in fact, God's word, a reliable historical record of what really happened, and I believe. That, that, that's, if you're in Christ this morning, that's why. If you have not believed, but today you are willing to believe, God will be well pleased with you. God will be well pleased and you will be more blessed than even Thomas. So John's purpose for writing the gospel, this is an even shorter point, shows up in verses 30 and 31. Why did John write his gospel? Two reasons. First, that we may believe. That's why he wrote. That's why he included all the things that he included. The second reason, because there is another reason. You can't stop there. Second reason is so that by believing, we might have life in his name. Like Jesus told Thomas, John is urging us, do not disbelieve, but believe. And like the disciples, we too can have Jesus' presence. We can have his peace. We can have his power. And we can have his purpose in our lives if we believe, if we trust in the resurrected Christ. Those who believe in the resurrected Christ are assured of all of that and so much more. So I think Tim Keller was right. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then we not only have to accept everything that he said as true, but we must confess him as our Lord and our God. And the only question after that is, if we've done that and we mean it, then we need, we need to get to work because he's given us a mission to accomplish. We've been empowered and we go in his authority. May God grant us favor as we obey 
And may there be many more lovers of Jesus in his kingdom as a result. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you um, again for this morning and for your word. And just, Lord, it's so overwhelming just trying to, trying to go back in time and imagine what it must have been like to be in that room when Jesus appeared. And oh, the grace and the mercy of you, Lord Jesus, that you um, are so kind towards us, so long-suffering, Lord, that you haven't put us on the shelf. You haven't disqualified us. You want to use us, and I pray that you will use us for your glory and for the extension and expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.